how far back can you remember? For some of us, that's easier than others. <laughs> that was the question that Wendy asked, not this Wendy, a different Wendy. Wendy asked her adoptive son, Peter, in this 1991 classic film, Hook. Now, in that film, now departed actor Robin Williams plays middle-aged lawyer Peter Banning. And while he and his wife are visiting his adoptive mother, Granny Wendy, at his childhood home in London, one night, uh, him and his wife and, and Granny Wendy, they come home from being out at a gala to find the front door kicked in. His children are missing. And this note pinned to the kid's bedroom door with an ornate pirate dagger saying, Dear Peter, your presence is requested at the request of your children. Kindest personal regards, J.S. Hook, Captain. Now, the mission before Peter, if we can call it that, could not be more clear. I mean, he knows what he has to do. He, he needs to find where his children have been taken to, rescue them from this J.S. Hook. It's no easy test to be sure, but it's clear. He knows clearly what he needs to do. But the even harder test for Peter, and the only way that he'll ever accomplish that mission in the end, is to accept his true identity. Because you see, Peter Banning is actually a middle-aged, now grown-up Peter Pan. That, that's who he is. Granny Wendy is actually his childhood sweetheart that he went on all these adventures with, who's now 80 plus years old. And his wife, Moira, is actually Wendy's granddaughter, who he saw in one of his adventures, flew in, fell in love with her, smitten by her, and decided to leave Neverland forever in order to be with her. And all the women said, amen. They would love some Peter Pans to grow up. Now, Peter Banning who's forgotten all of this, he's forgotten what his past was, understandably struggled to accept this identity, even though he trusts the source giving it to him. Wendy is saying it, reminding him, this is who you are. He finds it very hard to accept this identity, and yet as this film demonstrates so awesomely, if Peter can't first understand and embrace his identity, he'll never be able to accomplish this mission to rescue his adopted children. There's no question that this whole subject of identity is a pretty pervasive, hot-button issue in our culture and society today. You see it almost everywhere you turn. But what I want to talk with you about today is what I believe the Bible shows us about an essential relationship between identity and mission. And we've spent the last four months as a church going through the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts, seeing every week how that early pioneer church lived out the mission that Jesus had given to his church. What we've also said is that as receivers of that very same Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to his disciples in Acts 1-8 ourselves, the mission Jesus gave his disciples 2,000 years ago, be my empowered witnesses, build my kingdom through Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, that same mission is also ours today. And yet even with that mission clearly in front of us, what I'd also like to suggest to you is that just like Peter Banning, 
If we cannot understand and embrace our true identity as adopted sons and daughters of God, we too will never achieve our rescue mission that God has called us to join Him in. Because identity drives mission. It it, it fuels it. It provides as well the whole context by which you understand that mission and live it out. Like if you're a, a brain surgeon and you embrace and understand that identity, it's going to affect the way you live out your mission at a hospital in a way that's different than someone who is just a patient. They've got a different identity. Yours is a brain surgeon. One of the things I think this brief letter right near the end of the New Testament does so well is it helps us to see how those two things, mission and identity, work together in the life of a believer. And I'm praying this morning that seeing and understanding that relationship more clearly will be one of the things that helps us to take that mission that Jesus has given to His church and live it out and accomplish it in our city and world today. So in order to help us do that, I want to look at our passage this morning in three ways. I want to show you the identity giver. Identity given, and then finally, mission from identity. Okay, identity giver, identity given, and mission from identity. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again, please, to Jude's letter, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me as we look at how understanding and embracing our gospel identity as God's beloved leads us to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given to his church. So let's look first of all at the identity giver. The identity giver. Now, it might seem backward at first, but I think it's essential for us to look, first of all, at who it is that gives the identity that's going to lead us to accomplish our mission before we look at what the identity is. Why? Well, because we live in a world where we're not just seeking to find our own identity, who am I? We live in a world where thousands of people every day with their well-meaning people, yeah, and there's sometimes not so well-meaning people, they also want to tell us what our identity is. They want to tell us what our identity should be. But regardless of whether that's positive or negative, the questions that we always need to ask in that scenario is, A, is it true? Is what they're saying about me true? And the way we evaluate if that's true is saying, do I trust the source? Do I trust the source that's telling me this is what my identity should be? Be And how many times do we hear or say that well-worn phrase every day when we're talking about evaluating truth claims, especially in an information-saturated culture like ours today? You need to consider the source. We say that all the time. I mean, I, I dare one of you to use a Wikipedia as a source in your master's thesis. For instance, uh, let's say you're going out to buy a car. You're headed out to buy a car. We've all probably got certain manufacturers of the Hundreds of manufacturers out there. We've got certain manufacturers we trust. We say, I I like their cars, and I believe they make good cars. So we trust the truth claims they make about those cars over the very same claims that other car dealers make. We say, no, 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 these these cars are good. When I go to a used car dealership, I'm going to be looking for those symbols that identify them as being made by that manufacturer that I trust to know if I even want to look at that car or take it for a test drive. Well, very quickly, what we're going to see, and simply from our passage, is that the source of the identity that will lead us to accomplish our mission is none other than God Himself, our manufacturer, if you will. I want to show us a few things 
First of all, from verse 1, look there with me. Jude writes this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, Jude is an interesting person who, who knows a thing or two about identity. We don't know a whole lot about Jude, but one of the things we do know from verse 1 here is that he's the brother of James. Maybe you say, okay, so what? Great. I'm the brother of Stan. So what? Well, for first century people, they would have known, no, 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 this means something, because to just say the brother of James with no qualifier meant this is the James who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is the James who wrote the book of James, and James who was also the half-brother of Jesus, which means so is Jude. These guys are both half-brothers of Jesus. We say half because they don't share the same father. But throughout the gospel accounts, when you read them, you see, okay, Jesus' family members, they weren't super happy about Jesus going around telling people he was God and that they would forgive their sins. In fact, they thought he was nuts and they wanted to shut him up. So for Jude to open this letter by calling himself a brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ means his understanding of Jesus' identity had radically shifted from what it used to be. Because if you didn't know Christ, that's, that's not Jesus' last name. Okay, These guys are not brothers of Joseph and Mary Christ. This Christ is a, is a title. It's a title given to Jesus that means... Christos, it's, it's, he's saying he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the Son of God. And if you look at the second half of verse 1, there you see Jude telling us this same Jesus is the one who keeps and secures whatever this identity is that God gives us when we're in relationship to him. And what's amazing to see in that second part of this verse, verse 1 here, is that Jude is showing us that actually all three members of the Trinity are involved in giving us this identity. They're all there. Jesus, it says, is the one securing that identity for us. It's based on the Father's love for us. And it's an identity that is conferred on us by the calling of the Holy Spirit. Now, no, it doesn't say explicitly the Holy Spirit is the one calling and that's calling us. But I think there's plenty of biblical evidence to suggest that that's the case. He's the one who calls. Either way, if we believe that the God we follow is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... I think we'd agree the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is probably going to be involved in something that the other two members of the Trinity are involved in. He just will be. So Jude tells us that the triune God of the universe is the, is the giver of this identity that leads us to accomplish his mission. That's already amazing. And then when you consider this doxology, flip down to verses 24 and 25 now. You consider this doxology that he gives at the end on top of that reality where Jude is just piling on description after description of this amazing God and who he is. Verse 24, he's the preserver as well as the perfecter of this identity. Verse 25, he is the only God. He is our Savior. Uh, he's the, he, the one who is worthy of all glory, majesty, power, and authority for all time. It's just this huge picture of God he's putting before us, all-encompassing, incomprehensible greatness of this God who's, who's making this claim about what our identity is now. It's like this picture he has of God is like a suitcase. It's so jammed full you can't even put a sock into it. It's a huge picture of God. And when you consider all that and that this God is the one who's giving you this identity, when you're in relationship with him, it leads us to ask the question now, okay, do you trust that source? 
Is that a source that you feel like you can trust? Maybe a lot of us in here would say, yes. Okay, but I'll tell you what, even within the church, you ask people that same question, they'd say, is God a source you can trust? They'd say, yeah, 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 I I think so. Why? Why? Why not so confident? Well, because trust is a kind of a confusing thing. It's complicated. You know, on one hand, we got mom and dad, uh, who are generally pretty trustworthy people, when they tell you, you know what, you're the best at something, you're the brightest star at this, there's always kind of a reason to not trust them, right? To believe, you know, they're probably just pumping your tires a bit, even if you want to believe what they're telling you. But then conversely, on the other side, when you, we can tend to trust those kids at school, that grumpy coworker who tells you you're the very worst at something, even if we've got good reason to believe that we shouldn't trust them, and maybe they're just grumpy people, poor observation skills, whatever. It's confusing. It's complicated. Trust is a complicated thing. And so that's precisely why starting with the giver of this identity is so key. Because if you don't trust the source, if you don't see God as a trustworthy source to begin with, you say, you know, oh, he doesn't really know me. He doesn't understand my particular circumstances. If any of those things are coming into your mind, then you're never going to truly understand and embrace the identity he says you have when you're in relationship with him, which will inhibit your ability to live out the mission that he's called you to. But if you do, if you do see the God who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and everything in them, which means he's sovereign and powerful, and who also sent his son to die in your place on the cross, which means he's also loving and good. If you see that God as someone who's trustworthy, a trustworthy source of information, then you will. You'll grow in your understanding and embrace that identity that God says you have, even when you doubt or find it difficult to believe that it is true, because you trust the source. So the giver of this identity that will enable us to accomplish the mission is God himself. Do you trust that source? Do you really trust it? That's why we have to begin here, because if you don't truly trust the source to begin with, there's actually no point in even talking about the identity he says we have yet. Because why? Who cares what he says if we can't trust him? We need to begin with trusting the source. So that's the identity of the giver. God himself. If you're willing to at least for the moment, try to work to trust that source, or maybe you already do, then we can move on to look at now the identity given. The identity given. And I think this is, this is truly transformational for us to hear because in a day and age where hype and spin, a day where or bullying and, and, and trash talk and tearing people down is the order of the day, where it seems like our only value to others in this world is what we can give or do for them, which takes even the identities we do have and makes them about as stable and strong as sandcastles. If we're honest, we are desperate. We are desperate to know the things that this identity provides with us, provides for us, even if we've given up hoping for them long ago. We're desperate to know these things. Look back at verse 1 again with me, the second half there. Look at the, consider the description of this identity that Jude says we have in relationship to Jesus. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus. Called, loved, kept. 
That's your identity in Jesus. Called, loved, kept. Matt, I almost feel like I don't even need to say anything else. Let's go eat some barbecue. I mean, that in itself, it's so, and I'm a pastor, so of course I will say more, but the vision itself already, that already begins to show us a vastly superior identity than the ones we even currently hold right now, even if that's positive, and especially if it's not. But I think that also reveals why it was so important for us to begin by looking at trusting in the source who's making that identity claim. Because if a source is trustworthy to you, then just like Peter, when, when Wendy was telling him, this is what your identity is, he trusted the source, so he was at least willing to hear her out. He's at least willing to listen to her because he trusts the source. Even if it sounds too good to be true, even if it sounds crazy, that's why we needed to begin with trusting the source. And all I want to do for a minute now is just flesh out some of those descriptions for us a little bit more. Help us just get a firm grasp on what this identity is that God says that we have in Him, which really does sound too good to be true. Again, verse 1. Jude says, This identity that we have in Christ has these three characteristics, called, loved, and kept. Let's look at called, first of all. You think about being called part of our gospel identity. Think of it like this. A great way to picture it is like a child in an orphanage. What did we just read in our passage this morning? God says, I will not leave you as orphans. You're powerless on your own in an orphanage to get out of there. You're waiting for someone to come in and choose you to adopt you, choose you to adopt you, call you into their family, and then make you a part of that family, giving you their last name of the family. That's, that's what's different about calling in the Bible. It's not just saying, hey, come on, you're on our team. It transforms you to the place where you're actually now called by that name. I mean, how many of us are still scarred by gym class? And they did, I don't even know if they still do this, where they would pick two team captains, and then one by one they would pick out what are the teams going to be for whatever sport you were playing. And as the list goes down, you're like two people left. You're like, okay, I suck. I'm a total loser here. I hope they don't still do that. It's not, it's not fun. How incredible is it to know that the God of the universe, the one who created all things, chose you, picked you, called you to be a part of his family. He wanted you. He wants you. He's called you. I mean, you see that same imagery all through the Old Testament, talking about how God called Israel out of slavery, called them to be a part of his family, and they're those who are now called by his name. That's what it means to be a part of this gospel identity, that you're called. Next part of this identity is we're loved by the Father. We're loved by the Father, which this means that we have the eternal welcome. The eternal embrace of God the Father as his child. That's your identity now if you know Jesus as your Savior. It means you have access to God. Think about what that means. If you're in a relationship where you're loved by someone, you have access to them now in a way that no one else does. Because of that relationship now, you, you can come to them. You can, they share things with you. You have this deep relationship because you're loved. That's what you have now. As a child of God, as someone who is loved by the Father in a way that although he remains, yes, the sovereign king of the universe, he's someone you can now refer to as Abba, as Papa. 
I love what pastor and author Tim Keller said once about this. He wrote, the only person who dares wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. That's what it means to be loved by the Father. Finally, to be kept. To be kept by Jesus reminds us of the everlasting security of this identity. When you've been called and loved by the Father, you are now kept in that identity. Whether you are a prodigal or an elder brother, you're not going to come home one day and find the locks changed. Your access to God now is secure for all time. It's, it's the love that Paul talked about that nothing can separate us from in Romans 8. It's the, the gate that Jesus said he was in John 10 that, that secures us in his family and guards us and protects us from the enemies and wolves and thieves. It's the life that Jesus promised us in John 10 as well. He says, I gave them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Each one of those descriptions of our gospel identity, either individually or altogether, speaks to a deep human need in every single person, every single one of us, that no other identity can actually fulfill for us. Why? Because each of our identities, I don't care who you are, each of our identities starts out broken in some way because of sin. It doesn't get that way over time. It starts out that way. And in describing this gospel identity for us in such simple but profoundly beautiful terms called loved, kept, what this is, is this is God's loving plea here to the one who does not yet have this gospel identity. And he's saying, come on, let's get out of here. Don't, don't stay there anymore. There's something so much better for you over here. This is the same plea Jesus is giving Matthew 11. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. All you who are trying to live out that identity, whatever it is, the successful one, the intelligent one, the pretty one, the morally upright one, whatever it is that you're trying to live out, you thought was going to complete you, but still leaves you empty and hungry and, and, and wanting more at the end of the day. Come to me. Let's get out of here. It's Jesus' loving plea to those of you who've had an identity put on you that's like a black mark. That identity that says your identity is shame, is guilty, is failure, is not good enough. Placed on someone else, Jesus says, I know that's why you keep pushing everyone back so quickly who tries to get close to you. I know that's why you try to act so tough and hardcore because you know if anybody ever got close enough to you, they'd see what you're so desperate to hide from everyone. Come on, let's get out of there. Let's get out of here. Come to me and find rest at last. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who I made you to be. So much more than that. And that's that's life changing. That is truly gospel life changing recognition when you're finally given eyes to see it. Either for the very first time or as that understanding grows in us over time. Even once we've been given it, we don't know it at first. Okay, growing up. Prince William didn't know what it meant to be the son of the queen. He didn't know that. 
But as he grew and understood what that identity means, it fills him and shapes the way that he understands his identity now. Same thing here. How does it feel for someone whose identity has always been rejected to hear, called? For someone whose identity from the time, from that awful day in the past has always been dirty, spoiled, to hear, loved. How does it feel for someone whose identity has always been abandoned to hear, kept? It transforms us and continues to transform us as we grow in our knowledge and in our trust of the one who calls, loves, and keeps us. The thing we can never lose sight of in this discussion, as amazing and transforming as that gospel identity is, is that it's still an identity that's given. It's given to us when we put our faith in Jesus. It's not earned. It's not, uh, you don't already possess it. It's not stored up in some kind of latent potential, just waiting to be released. You don't have it yet. It's given to you. So Paul says in Romans 5, we, we were not saved. We didn't have the love of God poured out on us because we were so worthy and deserving. Christ's love was poured out on us when we were yet sinners, ill-deserving. It says later in Ephesians 2, that this identity that we have in Christ is not a result of works. You don't do enough to get there someday so that no one may boast. Which is why the gospel can transform our identity in these beautiful, empowering, chain-breaking ways while at the same time remove all grounds for boasting. Because you can't, you can't boast in a gift that's been given to you. The only thing you can boast about in a transaction like that is the giver, which is kind of the point. That's the identity giver, identity given. As our trust in the giver grows and our experience of and our embracing of that new identity we've been given deepens, when you begin to have those aha moments when you're like, oh, oh, that's who I am now, wow. That's who God's made me to be. As that grows and shapes in you, then and only then will we see how that new gospel identity connects to the mission that God's called us to live out as his people. So let's look finally now at mission from identity. Mission from identity. And I'm glad we're looking at this all together because it has to do with all of us, both individually as well as as a church family, but I'm also glad we're looking at this all together because there's some confusing language in here which if you don't see properly, it can throw us off track. What I'm referring to specifically is what Jude says there in verse 21. Now we'll get there in a second, but this description throughout that Jude has for this group of called, loved, and kept ones is beloved or loved ones. Now verse 3 17 and 20 in our New International Version, if you're using the Pew Bible, refers to them as dear friends. I think that's, that's a great translation, but I think dearly loved ones, beloved, I think is a bit more helpful translation in expressing the true depth of this relationship that God says we have when we're in relationship to Him. But look specifically at what Jude tells this beloved group to do in verse 21. He says this, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring to eternal life. Now, wait, what? Hmm? That's confusing. 
that's confusing because didn't he just say, that's, that contradicts everything he just said in verse 1 and 24 about how Jesus is the one who keeps us. Now, now we're supposed to keep ourselves? What? Which is it? This is a bit like, I don't know, trying to drive anywhere in Vancouver when there's a marathon. You come into an intersection, one traffic cop's like, yeah, come on, go ahead. You get even just to the other side of the intersection, and somebody's whistling at you like, no, no, you can't come this way. Turn around, go back. And you're like, okay. Somebody's going to tell me right now, which, where can I go? How do I get there? Who's, who's right here? Well, take a deep breath. Let's calm down for a moment, and let's see. I, I believe the way to understand what Jude is saying here is to understand that the mission that God calls us to as a church is both external call, go and be my witnesses, make disciples, spread my kingdom to the end of the earth, and it's also an internal call. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait. Which makes sense when you look at the early church in Acts that we've been studying for these past four months. We saw the way there's numerous examples of an external call. They're growing the kingdom, spreading the kingdom, but we also see the internal call as they're doing all these things, an internal witness to each other as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're praying, they're breaking bread with one another, meeting one another's needs. What are they doing with all those things? Keeping themselves in the love of God. So we'll look at both of these quickly, the external and the internal mission of God for the church. And we'll start by looking at the internal call, because that's where Jude starts. So look at verse 21 again with me. Yes, Jude tells us we are to keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for Jesus' return. And the big brains who know way more about Greek than I do tell me that that phrase, keep yourself in God's love, that's, a, that's the primary clause in this paragraph, which is then modified and qualified on both sides by these other things. So putting it all together in one big sandwich, what Jude is saying here is that as Jesus called, loved, and kept ones, as his beloved, we are to keep ourselves in God's love by, verse 20, growing in our faith, praying in the Spirit, and then verse 21, expectantly waiting for Jesus' return. That's what keeping ourselves in God's love looks like, by doing those things. Which might still sound confusing to you until you zoom out and you see that this command to do these things is no different from any command in God's word. Namely, remembering that we obey God not to be loved by him, but because we already are. Same thing here. We keep ourselves in God's love like this, not in order to be kept by Jesus, but because we already are kept by him. We do this as we remain in that secure, kept place. Why? Because the more you know and trust the giver of your gospel identity, discipling on the positive side of conversion by building your faith, praying in the Spirit, living like Jesus is actually coming back one day. And then the more you exercise that identity, live it out, put it on, and, and do things with it, the more you're going to grow in your confidence in that identity to carry out the mission that Jesus has given to his church. So this internal part of the mission is about gradually solidifying that identity once you've come to accept it, solidifying what that identity is and then living it out more and more. What about the external mission? Well, if you look at verses 22 and 23 now, Jude says this, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the, fle even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So I think Jude here is describing discipleship on the negative side of conversion. 
Now, we talk about discipleship here in a very specific way. We often think of it in the church as somebody gets saved, they're converted, and then we disciple them to grow to be more like Jesus. What we've been saying and will continue to say is discipleship is a lifelong process, starting with hatred of Jesus, I want nothing to do with him, over to I love Jesus, I'm perfected by him in the end. And conversion is somewhere along in the middle there, but discipleship happens all the way through that spectrum. So we're talking about, I think Jude is talking here about discipleship pre-conversion, before somebody has any idea what this identity is for themselves. But those are people that can be, yes, outside the church, in our schools, in our families, in our communities, but they can also be in the church. In fact, they are in the church. Don't fool yourself to believing that somebody shows up here every Sunday that they have a saving relationship with Jesus. When it comes to, so what does it look like? Well, when it comes to this first one here, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. I think we saw an amazing example of that just last week when we saw how Paul was ministering to these people who doubted, who didn't know, well, what is this Jesus you're talking about? What's this resurrection? And he was gentle. He reasoned with those people of Athens instead of hammering them for their idolatry. And because of that, gained an incredible stage to present the gospel. Being merciful to those who doubt, those people who you're sharing your faith with, who right now are like, man, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. I don't know, not being like, oh, you don't believe in Jesus? I'll forget it. Move on to someone else. No, being merciful. Merciful with those who have doubts, who are working through it. The other two pieces of this discipleship on the previous side of conversion, I think, are actually really dangerous kinds of discipleship. They're dangerous. Think about it. Snatching someone from a fire, that usually involves you getting pretty close to the fire yourself, doesn't it? Seeking to rescue someone, let's say maybe who had leprosy out of a collapsed building, means you're going to get pretty up close and personal to some corrupted, disease-stained clothing. So it's a pretty, they're pretty stark images, actually. To snatch someone from the fire, uh, I see this uh, as really a last-ditch, deathbed kind of witness to someone, the kind you would see in hospitals and hospices, maybe at accident scenes or maybe even on a battlefield and if you know chaplains or people who are are believers that are first responders they'll have all kinds of stories of this kind of witness where it's much less reasoning and let me let me just coax you to understand it's more pleading it's more like listen you got about five minutes before you're going to stand before the god of the universe are you ready would you please please put your trust in jesus trust me trust in jesus today you don't have time to wait that's the kind of witness you're not going to use every day, but it is appropriate sometime when someone is moments from standing before God as their judge. I think that's what he's talking about, about snatching some from the fire. Showing mercy mixed with fear. I think that's the kind of uh, discipleship and the warning that Paul gives in Galatians 6.1 when he says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. There's that mercy again. But watch yourself. There's the fear. Or you may be tempted. I think this is the warning given to every lifeguard when they're talked about saving somebody who's drowning. You don't just swim up there like Michael Phelps and just try to grab hold of them. You do that, you're probably going to get pulled under and drowned yourself. What do they teach you? They teach you swim up and then throw them a flotation device. Swim in backwards and give them your foot. Why? Because if they try to drag you and pull you under, you're far enough back. I think this is 
giving us an idea of what discipleship looks like when you're working with someone who's dealing with a particular sin issue that you have struggled with in the past, or maybe you're still working through yourself. Yes, you want to engage them. Yes, you want to share the experience of freedom you've had, but be careful. Show mercy mixed with fear, lest you get drawn back into the same sinful pattern yourself. In both of these cases, an internal and the external mission, increasing trust in the giver of our gospel identity and a developing acceptance of that identity are the things that will then lead us to carrying out the mission. We need both, both of those pieces. When we accept this new identity because we trust in the one who says we have it, then we can accomplish the mission he's called call us to, but only then. Or think of it this way. Maybe you wanted to go out and get your first aid training. And you get your uh, emergency medical responder training. You, you take the test. You get that little card that says you are now an emergency medical responder. Great. First time you actually encounter someone who's unconscious, not breathing, no pulse, seeing is safe. Someone who's actually choking and can't breathe. And if you don't trust in that a licensing body that examined you and, and said you are an emergency medical responder, or if you haven't been practicing, you haven't been living out that identity as an emergency medical responder on a consistent basis, you may shrink back from the mission. Even when it's right in front of you, you can clearly see what it is. You may shrink back from it. It can be the exact same with us as a church today. Now that we have Jesus' mission for us clearly in front of us, if we don't embrace, keep ourselves in this new identity as those who are called, loved, and kept, or fail to trust in the one who calls, loves, and keeps us, we too could shrink back from the mission that we've spent all this time looking at through Acts. We may shrink back, and you know one of the easiest ways we could do it? We could just keep talking about it. Talk about it all the time. Pray about it. Uh, uh, we have sermons about it, talk about how desperate the mission is. Yes, we need to get out there. We need to be sharing our faith, but then never actually do it. Never actually step out and witness. Why? Because we don't know who we are. We haven't yet embraced that identity as who we are. Because remember, identity drives mission. It's what drives it. Beloved, called, loved, and kept that's your identity if you know Jesus and have put your faith in Him. That's who you are. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I'm going to ask you right now, if you will hear God's unchanging decree spoken over you and trust in the one who decrees it. You see it in John's first letter. Here it is. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are now. That's your identity. Called, loved, kept. A child of God with everlasting access to the Father that can't be taken from you. That's who you are, that's who we are as the church here in this neighborhood, in this city. Let's grow in that identity. Let's solidify it. 
And then let's go accomplish the mission that Jesus has called us to as a church. We'll never do it, though, without the Spirit's empowering. So let's pray right now and ask Him to help us. And I ask those of you who are helping me serve communion, if you would come forward as well at this time. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed and humbled this morning as we hear again who you've called us to be, who you've made us to be, what our identity is. We forget it lots of times. We lose sight of it. We don't believe it. And every day we struggle with other identities that people want to put on us that are different than what you've called us to, that are crushing and weighing us down every day that you long to free us from. Father, would you remind us daily who we are. And as we grow to believe and accept that, and as we trust and grow in our trust of you, and help us to accomplish your mission as your children, who you've called to be your witnesses. For your glory and for your kingdom, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.